investigated. I want to go through the first 14 verses as our reading, and then we'll go ahead and go through the whole chapter. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan, and she bore still another son and named him uh, Shelah, and it was at uh, Chizib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord took his life. And then Judah said to Onan, Go to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and rise up offspring for your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And so he went into his brother's wife. He wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But when he did this, this was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he took his life also. And then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I was afraid that he too may die like his brothers. And so Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, uh, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up uh, to the sheep shears in Timnah, and he and his friends, uh, Hiram, the, with, him, with him and his friend Hiram, uh, Hira, the Adumalite. It was told Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And so she removed her widow's garments, and she covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in the gate of uh, Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. Growing up as a kid, there was never a lack in those days, in the neighborhoods at least that I grew up in, uh, for kids and playmates. Back then, the neighborhoods were just full of kids, and uh, it was amazing at times, uh, some of the things that happened. So, if there was a game of work-up baseball or a game of street football or hide-and-seek, um, getting enough kids was never a problem. And boy, we would have some fun. One of the things kids play, especially boys, is this type of uh, follow-the-leader uh, when they do things. And so if you rode a bike, uh, you'd usually be in a line. And if the one kid in the front you know, jumped a curb, guess what? Everybody jumped a curb. You know, If he did skid it out, you skid it out. Because you just didn't want to be upstage, right? You remember those days. And it was also true when you were messing around. For me, it would have been the beach, Golden Gardens, Alki. could have been Lake Washington. Or quite a few times, it was the woods. We actually lived in a place with a green belt with a stream. And so you talk about a wonderful place to grow up. And so as a group of kids, you walk around. And if you came to a stream, you'd kind of do the same thing. And if it required stepping on certain rocks to make it across that stream or creek, correctly, then each of the people behind you would try to do the same thing, lest that you slip or miss the rock and slip into the creek and end up with a wet shoe or worse. And I can tell you as boys, there were many a days where we ended up with uh, wet shoes, uh, muddy shoes, and uh, of course, none of that slowed us down. It slowed moms down, but never slowed us down. So that's a rule as a boy. If, you, if you're messy, don't go home. Not yet, anyway, because the minute you go home, your mom's going to clean you up. So just stay away until you're done for the day, okay? 
Um, and, and who knows, you'll probably get punished, right? It has always went that way. Um, but anyway, I bring this up because it, the Christian walk is like that. It's a journey, if you will, um, through the woods and over a creek. It's a series of steps. And when you hit the right ones, guess what? You stay dry. But the potential for a fall is always there, and we need to be aware of that. You know, it's called navigating, where you plot a course and you follow a plan, or it's called reading a map when you take the necessary route to get you to the destination. And, and again, we might think that failure is unavoidable. I can't help it, you know. The truth is, now listen to this. This is so important. The truth is success and victory is possible and we should walk with that always before us. It's like in the military, those guys that have to navigate a minefield. I can only imagine what that must be like. Where the enemy has buried explosives in an attempt to hinder and even halt uh, their enemy. But you know what? Is it difficult? Absolutely it's difficult. But what is possible with the right training and the right equipment, they actually can navigate those fields and clear those fields and get on with their goal. And living the Christian life, it is no cakewalk. Where, where the enemy, he has buried explosives, if you will. He is trying to hinder us, to stop us. But we can expect victory and growth and even joy along the way. And that's what we want to understand. Jesus did it. And even though he was God, he is an example to you and I of the walk that we can walk and the walk that we should be after. Now, the reason I bring this up is because Genesis 38, and I don't know if you read ahead, it really has everything to do with this. Now, some of you may be shaking your head if you've read ahead, kind of going, I don't see it. But in these chapters, it's there. And we, have, we see these very things. First of all, you have people. Okay, you have Judah. Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, remember? You have three sons now that are going to be born to Judah. Um, and then you have the, a wife that will come to the first son named Tamar. Then you have the circumstances, okay, the events. There's the stepping stones, if you will. There's a right choice to be made in a wife. There's obedience versus disobedience. There's faithfulness versus a promise not kept. And there's lust. And so there's the need for then correct navigation. Navigate the things right and success will come but fail to do so, and there'll be consequences, there'll be a price to pay, and we see that this morning as well. And so again, the book of Genesis, we find very relevant. I feel sorry for people that feel the Bible isn't relevant for today. You know, that you know we're so beyond that now, and man is so much more enlightened. That's just not the truth. The Bible is so relevant, and you're going to see it again this morning. Um, and so hopefully your desire is to hit those stones, okay? So let's make our way into this now. Chapter 38, like I pointed out to you last week, at least I did for a second service for sure, it may seem like it's out of place. We, we finished 39 last week. Jo- Joseph has been betrayed, and he's on his way to Egypt. Uh, chapter 39 will continue that process. But here, right in the middle of that, is chapter 38. And it seems to take an entirely different direction as it documents Judah, Jacob's fourth son by Leah. And there are those, actually, if you do any studying, that will say it is out of place. Moses made a mistake. It really doesn't fit here. But I don't agree, okay? And I don't think you will either. Um, if we, what we said last week is true, that the ending of the chapter, the ending chapters of Genesis are not just about Joseph, but about the nation of Israel as a whole, then the Lord led them to Egypt, as we said, to protect them, 
to keep them as a people, as a nation, and then to grow and develop them. Remember, they'll go in 70 men strong. They'll come out 600,000 men strong and another total to two to three million women, children, and men when they finally come out. And so if that's the case, then chapter 38 isn't a mistake because um, it, it addresses the very need to go in there to protect them and to develop them. Otherwise, if this not only happened to Judah, could it have happened on and on and on again? And you could see the problem that would have happened. And so they could have been lost, if you will, as a family, as a people, and ultimately as a nation. Now, as they were in this land, we know there were other tribes uh, slash nations. Uh, some of the nations, would we might think they were tribes because they wouldn't have been very big. Others were bigger. And it was in the land where Jacob's family, and they're just 70, and so Judah visited then this man named Hira, who was an Edomite. So he's not an Israelite, if you will. And while there, he takes a daughter of a Canaanite named Shua to be his wife. Okay. Shortly thereafter, I'm just highlighting to you, we all read this, she bears a child to him. Uh, probably over several years this took place. And so Judah ends up then with three sons, uh, Ur, Onan, and I know it sounds weird, but Sheila. And it was kind of like modern version or ancient version of a boy named Sue, right? And so he ends up with these kids. And of course, the problem is this. And if you didn't pick this up, maybe some of you did. The problem was right there, Judah did something. He went against Abraham's example that they were to be a people among their own people. And they were not to be developed as a people from the tribes that occupied the land. And so Abraham made sure that Isaac did that, that he got a wife from his own people for Isaac. Isaac made sure that happened to Jacob. But now Judah breaks that pattern and it will cause problems. And remember, Esau had taken a Canaanite wife. And what do we read in Genesis 28.8? It says it displeased Isaac. And so again, it was more about fearing God. God-fearing and making sure the wife you marry is that way as well. And it wasn't really this race thing that we might want to think it really was. What's the big deal with marrying someone like that? And so again, we see the reason Egypt was necessary, don't we? To keep Israel from being lost. And, and so we can say Judah missed the first stone. He jumped, but he came down in the water by making then this ungodly decision of taking a wife from among the Canaanites. Now, this is the first application I'm going to give you. If you're making notes, I'm going to give you six application points this morning. The first one is when we make decisions as, believer, as believers, make biblical ones. Using the Word of God to direct us and to confirm our choice. And I know it may sound like, well, Scott, that's a give me, isn't it? And it, in a way it is. But when it actually comes down at times to making the decision, it's not, is it? Because so often we do other things. And so we want to make biblical decisions. And of course, how do you make biblical decisions? You've got to use the Word of God. And you know, very simply, I've told you this before, and it's so important to understand, is when you're about to make a decision, you know, search your heart, search the Word. If you need help because you're young in the Lord and you don't know, know the Word that well, seek out somebody else to help you. But see, does, this, does the Word agree with this? Or do I automatically, am I counterdicting the Scripture? I know you're not going to like this, some of you. If you're counting the Scripture and the decision you're about to make, stop. Don't go any farther. You are not to then make that decision the way you think you are, if it's going to counterdict Scripture. And so that's what we want to make sure we do. And I think it speaks to us here that Judah should have done the same thing. 
He could have remembered Abraham. He could have remembered his uh, grandfather Isaac, even Jacob, and yet he forgot that. Now, if you don't think Marion, as he did, was a big problem, then look at our passage and you'll see that what the Canaanite culture made a person and what God thought of it. Verse 6 again. Now, Judah took a wife from Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord took his life. And so Ur was wicked. That's what the word means, or some of your translations will use that word. So much so that the Lord took his life. And we know that God is a God full of grace and mercy, abounding in forgiveness, but he also sees all things. And so whatever it was, the Bible doesn't spell it out here about Ur, it was enough that God said he's gone and he took his life. And so we can conclude from him being called this evil person, this wicked person, that he wasn't going to be good for Israel and he wasn't going to be good for Judah's future. And so God stepped in and it kind of now we start to realize the mistake that Judah was making. Now, Ur was gone, but his wife Tamar remained. And there was something known as the Leverite uh, regulation Um, which said that when a woman's husband died and she remained childless, childless, if there was a brother, then the brother was to take her and bear bear children by her for the son that had died. And so this fell to Judah's next son by Tamar, Onan. And look what we read, verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife. And so again, this was a custom called the Leveret Regulation. And go to your brother's wife, perform your duty as your brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring, who? For your brother. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order that not to give offspring to his brother. But but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and so uh, he took his life also. And so the name Onan is very interesting. It means strong if you look it up. And we can see that when it came to obeying his father and really obeying the Lord, he was a strong-willed individual. He was unbroken, if you will. And he was going to do what he wanted to do before he did what anybody else wanted him to do. And because of that, he was displeasing to the Lord. What he did was displeasing to the Lord, and his life was taken as well. And again, just keep in mind what? The Lord is just. Nobody will ever be able to stand before the Lord and come up with an excuse, and he'll go, oh my goodness, I didn't think of that one. You know? God is just. And whatever God does, he will be just in that. And so again, even though we don't have all the details, we see now that a second son is taken. And here's another thing to apply, another application point, okay? Obedience and humility bring life, but disobedience and pride bring death. And the Lord is looking then for broken people, isn't he? Who know his ways our best, and follow those ways. And that's so important, isn't it? Do you understand that having come into Christ, in one sense your pride has been crucified, but in another sense, pride is alive and well? Amen? Come on. It is, isn't it? And pride is the enemy and the opposite of humility and brokenness and a humble heart. And yet that is what God is looking for you, for us, for in us. Okay? He wants us to be those obedient and humble people. And so that's another thing that we pull from this. Well, there was still the third son, Shelah. And so it was now his responsibility to bear a son to Tamar in order uh, that uh, 
Actually, he could be the heir of Ur, the first son. And at this time, Judah was being truthful, verse 11, when he says that Shelah was too young. And so maybe between Ur and Onan, there was this large gap that made Shelah then quite a bit younger and too young at this time to marry. And while Judah uses this as a reason, look at verse 11. What he really was thinking is, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. And so understand, that's where Judah is at now. Judah understands this uh, Leverite law and what was supposed to take place. But all of a sudden he realizes, two of my sons are gone. And he's putting two to two together. They both were with her. And he's drawn some wrong conclusions. But he's going to do what he can to keep his third son away from her. And so um, that's what he does. And so here then is another thing to apply is that number three, blindness to our sin and lack of repentance is a very real possibility. So Judah had made a mistake when he married a Canaanite. It resulted in the loss of two sons. Now he's lying to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He's about to willingly, you'll see in just a minute, sleep with what he thinks is a prostitute making another wrong choice. And so when what was needed was honesty and a vision, a clear vision, and it could have led to repentance, Judah was blind to his real need and what would put him back on the right course. And you guys, it's such a good reminder to you and I that blindness to our own sin and a lack of repentance is a very real possibility for us. And that's why we have to be so before the Lord, so open before the Lord, so tender before the Lord, so teachable, if you will, as people. We want to have that sensitivity, you know, to the Holy Spirit. You know, maybe it'd be good at times if the Holy Spirit was like some wives, okay? And, you know, I'm not, that's not a bad thing, okay? Let me clarify what I mean. You know, I'm just thinking of me and Wink and in my house. And when I have great sensitivity to Wink, it goes pretty good. But if the sensitivity is lacking, then sometimes Wink slash the Holy Spirit example <laughs> lets me know. <laughs> and I thought, you know, Lord... But the Lord's not like that. See, the Lord's very patient. And the Lord is looking always for us to make that move. But I thought, wow, Lord, you know, that's what we want to be like, that sensitivity. And we don't want to be blind. And, and then because if we're blind, we're never going to repent. Well, agreeing, then the best thing for now was to go back and live with her father. And by the way, you may not understand that, but in that culture, that would have been a shame to her to now end up back in her father's house, having once been married and left. She moves back home. Time passes, verse 12. Translation, Sheila has grown up and Tamar now knows that Judah wasn't going to allow her to have sons by him. And again, a second shameful thing then to her. So he is shaming her left and right, if you will. And so when it was time to shear the sheep, Judah, he had lost his wife. He went up with his friend Hiram, Hira, the Adulamite, to participate in the shearing. And Tamar then set his plan in action that would bring her a son and remove the shame. And note what we read there at the the end of verse 14, for she knew that Sheila had grown up and she had not given him as a a wife. So what we see there is what she suspected. She now learns that Judah was never going to give that. And again, that doesn't make what she did a right decision, but it does show you then why she did what she did. And so verse 12, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to the sheep shears at Timnah, and he and his friend Hira, the Adumanite. 
it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And so she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gate of uh, Enium, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot where she had covered her face. And so he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was in his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore, I will give you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Moreover, will you give a pledge unto me uh, until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her. And he went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. And so something that was done at sheep shearing time was a letting loose, if you will. And I'm sure it involved food and drink and partying, indulging, as we read here, and sexual pleasures for men. Um, that's not far-fetched. Years ago when I lived in Montana, and in the fall when the wheat harvest starts taking place, you know, the trucks start rolling, the combines start rolling. 24 hours a day, these guys are working hard. And they start making some big bucks. Well, I actually at that time lived in a mission, not as a, 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 a resident in that sense, but I worked at a mission. And so I lived in the heart of downtown Great Falls. And I know very well what it was to see these guys take their money and start partying and start doing things they shouldn't do. And that's what's taking place here. And so Judah is doing that. It's wrong. He lies with Tamar thinking that she was a harlot. He doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. And if you look down at verse 21, it says that she's going to be referred to as what was a temple prostitute. So this is something that was going on. And of course, that is in the Lord's temple. That hasn't been built yet. Um, you know. But it, this would have been a local or pagan temple okay, uh, unto a false god with probably incorporating some type of idol. And it wasn't common in such a community that every woman would be required to offer her services in this manner from time to time in worship and honor of the pagan uh, god or goddess. And so that's what was, this was all about. And again, note the danger then that Israel faced in living in this land as now Judah partakes in something with seemingly no concern. See, And in exchange for sex, Judah agrees to give her a goat leaving his seal, his cord, and his staff as assurance that he will keep his part of the agreement. The seal would have been the family seal, something very valuable in those days, putting the family name and honor on whatever it was stamped upon. The cord was just uh, uh, like a, a necklace, if you will. Um, some of your Bibles will translate it uh, a bracelet, but it was that which held the seal, and they usually wore around their neck. And then the staff was very important as well. It was way more than a walking stick. It identified the family. Making it, um, making it a well is a, a, a thing that they would use in conducting business. And today, it would really be like our driver's license and our credit card. You know, with a driver's license and a credit card, we know who you are, and you have the means then to conduct business. And so that's what it would have been like. Here, I'll give you my driver's license, and I'll give you my credit card till I bring my goat to you. You know, you know, I could just have fun with all this stuff and I'm going to stay away from a lot of it because, you know. <laughs> anyway, I was just thinking about men and goats and I'm just not going to say anything else. So anyway, but um, so that's what it would have been like um, in those days. And um, 
he he comes and he he gives him these things to her, and uh, so that later she knows what she's doing. Judah's going to be able to identify. And then this then, you guys, leads then to another point that we want to apply. And I think this is an important one. That living in in an immoral world doesn't mean that we are to live that way. And maybe I could rephrase that. It it doesn't mean we have to live that way. I think sometimes we would like to use the excuse if we have fallen in this area to say, well, it can't be helped. There's no choice. And again, that is a type of thinking as believers, if we're serious about our walk with the Lord, we've got to change that type of thinking because that is the wrong way of thinking. And, and you'd think, again, for Christians, this wouldn't be a problem. But you know, one, our flesh is alive and well. Amen? Okay. Not that you agree, but it is. See, I want you to understand this. And sexual sin is a constant source of temptation. So this area is just as much a problem today as it's ever been. I mean, it's amazing today that the battle that we face in this area. And we don't have to look too far to see that sexual sin is a very real problem for believers today. People who have given their life to Christ. People who really want to live above that. It's a problem. And we have to understand that. It doesn't matter if you are married or unmarried. It's a temptation. If you are old or young, see, we think maybe, okay, we understand with young, but not with the old. Well, let me tell you, there are many old people that act as if they're young and don't know better. It's a problem for teens and preteens, okay? For middle-aged people, you name it, sexual temptation is no respecter of persons. And we have to understand that. I think we have to understand what we're dealing with in this life if we hope to have victory in this life, if we hope to appropriate what Christ can do for us. And so it might be an ongoing thing. What we might say, well, it's a minor thing. And by the way, is there really any minor sin? Doesn't all sin have the potential to do the same thing? To hurt your life, to hurt others, and hurt your walk with the Lord? It does, doesn't it? So we might say, well, it's a minor thing, or it could be a full-blown thing, and a full-blown affair when one has forsaken their spouse for another. And isn't it funny how the world has softening things? You know, it used to be called adultery. It used to be called fornication. It used to be called, you know, immorality. But now we call it an affair. Like it's, it's legitimized. No, you know, don't do that. You know, or we say personal preference when it comes to sexual things. But surely we're not going to call it immoral, you know. And you know what? We want to be careful. Watch this. We want to be careful that we don't soften something the Lord has intended to be hard. Okay? I think this is very important. Lest by softening it, we then fall for it. And I think that's what the world does. When, when all of a sudden the Bible says it's an adultery, it's fornication, it's moral, it's wrong. And all of a sudden we say, well, no, it's just an affair. And we start softening it down. It makes it so easy then for us to fall into that. And I say, man, use those words, Lord. Keep those words there because we need to know those. And so what was the answer? What's the answer? What are we to know? Uh, what are we to, who know Christ to see and do? And listen to this. We have to come to realize that victory in these areas is possible, that we can have success, but we, want to, we, want, but we have to want it and value it more than a few moments of pleasure. And that's what really we're talking about, aren't we? See, victory is possible. I know I'm saying this, and some of you, you're hearing it, but you're not going to get it. I wish you would, but I just know. I've been around it long enough to know, okay? Because it took me a while to understand it too. 
we get so f- we, we don't realize, we don't believe that victory is possible. We don't believe we can have success. And when we do that, we may think we do, but in here we're not. We're not believing. And we're going to go out and we're going to make a mistake again and again and again until something clicks finally. And we have to understand that we have got to want and value victory and success and what Christ has for us more than a few moments of pleasure. And again, that's what we're talking about, aren't we? A few moments of pleasure. It is shallow, usually. It is temporary fulfillment at best. It is being controlled by the flesh, not by the Spirit. It's what the Bible called lust. And in the New Testament, I looked it up, there's only two words that are used for lust. And if I incorporate the meanings, they pretty much mean the same. It means to set the heart upon, to long for, to covet, a longing and desire for. And that's what it's talking about. And we understand those impulses that they were given us that we might be fruitful and multiply. So again, we don't have to apologize for the impulses, okay? But we need to understand they're to be under the control of the Spirit and under the control of God. You know, I think here are some things that help with success. Number one, information. We need information. More specifically, make sure you see we need biblical information. We need to know what the Lord's will is in this area. And, and that there is a way that he would have us live and a way that he wouldn't have us live. Now, let me remind you of something. Okay, and I'm reminding myself of this. You know, people like Larry Dankel, and I'm not picking on you, Larry. I respect Larry. Larry, I always use Larry as my old person example. Okay, so, and I could use uh, Bruce over here. But I, when I do that, I'm not picking on you guys by no means. I have the utmost respect for those that have been around longer than I have. But they will tell you in their day, immorality and morality and a standard of right and wrong and living was very clear. And in our generation, my generation and you that are even younger than me, guess what? It hasn't been so clear. And so I have found, at least for me, and if I'm off base here, then okay, but I think maybe you'll agree. I have found I've had to go back and learn the Lord's way. I've had to learn morality. You know, sadly, my mom did the best she could was raising four boys. But I never had no birds and bees talk, okay? And I never really had, mom never really explained anything to us in some ways other than we crossed that line and then the leather belt explained to us. But we, it wasn't really explained to us clearly that, you know, the Lord wants you to live this way. And so I've come to Christ and I've had to go back and learn that there is a way that he wants us to walk. And we need to understand that. So we need information. The second thing is we need to see it's personal. And by that I mean that immorality in the many forms it takes, affects more people than just you. And so you are affected. If there's a spouse, the spouse can be affected. If you're young, parents can be affected. Uh, We could add other family members and friends get affected. Work associate gets affected. Church families get affected. And your relationship with the Lord is affected. That, That is, if we realize how personal the Lord wants our relationship to be. This has been one of the greatest things for me. I'll just be open and honest with you. I'm not going to go too open and honest with you. I don't want you to do that with me either, by the way, okay? We can just say things without all the details. And I mean that, by the way. Sometimes I don't need all the details, and you don't either. But I will say this much. I'm a man. I understand sexual temptation. And one of the things as of late that has really been helping me is to understand that if my walk with the Lord is going to be as personal as it's supposed to be, as that He is a person, then I need to understand when I violate His law, I hurt Him. And that has been a great help to me to be and motivated me. Not just his word, which tells me how to walk, 
But it's realized it's more than that. And again, I could use Wink as an illustration in our marriage. You know, when I cross a line I shouldn't cross, do something I shouldn't do, and I upset her, I realize, ooh, I don't like that when I do that to her. Nor do I like it when she does it to me. Okay? She's working hard, though, and she's doing well in that area. Okay? Where is she? Is she here today? Hi, honey. (laughs) She's behind the pole, so I can't see her. But she's back there. Okay, so I figured she's back there. I see my daughter, so I figured she's she's back there. I got a great wife, don't I? <laughs> How many of you ladies could take the picking on? I, I get her all the time, don't I? You know, I, and I only do that. It just shows you how awesome she is, you know. And uh, golly, I got to buy her another gift today now. So, <laughs> but understand, guys, make it personal. Do you really want to hurt other people? And do you really want to hurt your Lord? And I think the answer is no. Next thing, and this is, I love this one. Welcome guilt and conviction. The world we live in is bit by bit taken away the idea of guilt and conviction. Do you understand that? That's what happens when you seek to do away with a creator. The next thing to go is what the creator talks about. And the world is seeking to do away with those. So, you know, there's where there should be guilt. No, there's no guilt. You shouldn't feel guilty. You know, no, you shouldn't be, you know, have that feeling of conviction when the truth is you really should. And so we want to take, you know, take them away. And, and, and what hope does one have of repentance if you take guilt and conviction away? The Holy, the Spirit, the New Testament tells us that one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction to the world. So you want to cross that line, go ahead. Now you're throwing out conviction and you're throwing out the work of the Spirit, who's the third person in the Trinity, who's God. And I hear the thunder in the background and... Don't go any farther, okay? See, I'm just joking, but you understand. And we want to welcome guilt and conviction. You know, I don't want to do them away. And it's not my motivation. I think, the, I think guilt and conviction are limited in their motivation, okay? I think they, there's a place for them. But if, if we are trying to change our behavior so, solely on the guilt and conviction we feel, more is needed. We don't want to exclude them. But more is needed than just guilt and conviction. So we need to know the Word. We need to know it's personal. And we need then the fourth thing, a godly vision. And again, that sees victory and success are possible and we have to want it more than the momentary pleasure of sin. You know what it means? It really means growing up. It means, Guys, and I'll just speak to you for a minute. It, becomes being, it means becoming a real man. Real men don't mess around. Real men honor and love their wife. Okay? And, and that's what it means. And again, I'm not trying to be hard. I, I'm being just as hard on myself. I come from a, again, I wasn't raised in a, in a real strong Christian home. And I could tell you, I mean, you know, when in the 60s, drugs and music and rock and roll and sex were what went together. And I was right in that scene for several years. So I'm not talking to somebody that doesn't know this or isn't guilty of stuff. But again, We've got to want this more. We've got to grow up. We've got to say, Lord, I've got to be serious about my walk. Watch what Romans says here in this passage in Romans. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ is raised, was raised from the dead through the glory um, of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. There it is. There's your first hint. It's, we're, it's a, we're able to walk in newness of life. For if we have become united in him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. See, not will be, was 
in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is free from sin. And then down to verse 11, even so consider or reckon as the word yourself to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so you in Christ are dead to sin. Did I say sin is dead? No, I didn't say that. There's a difference. But, and again, I, I sometimes I know I sound like a broken record and it's just going to get worse because I'm getting older. But that word reckon or consider is a financial term. It's the idea that you worked in a warehouse. This works for me because I used to work in a warehouse. You worked in a warehouse and you had a boss and he was a bad boss. And one day you came in and you're told you have a new boss. And that's what this means. That's exactly what this Romans passage means. That at one time sin was your boss, but now sin isn't your boss and Christ is your boss. There's new management, okay? And so it's an incredible thing for, for you and I to understand that. And so um, go on, verse 20. When Judah set the young goat by his friend, the Adumalite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the man of her place, uh, saying, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road of Enaim? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there's been no temple prostitute here. And Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not uh, find her. And so Judah, making good on his promise, then brings a goat. But when he sends it by Haram to her to deliver it, uh, Tamar is gone. And why is she gone? Because for her, it really wasn't about pleasure. It wasn't about payment, was it? But it was that she might bear a son uh, for Judah's family line, and that line would continue. And ten generations later, I counted them last night. You could do it later to check on me here. Uh, later, King David would come by this line. And I think it was, I counted them actually. Sorry, I'm getting, kind of getting a little weird. And 26 generations after that, uh, Christ would come by the line of Judah. And note something here. Look at verse 23 again. We read that Judah was concerned about being a laughingstock among men. And I thought he should have been more concerned with what the Lord thought. See, and that's sad, isn't it? We understand that, though. He very well might have kept him from doing what he did if he was worried more about what the Lord thought. But we read nothing of that. Um, nothing that he had done something wrong or done something against the Lord. And so verse 24 now it was about three months uh, later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot and behold, she is also a child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And it was while she was being brought out and watch now, she knew what she was doing, that she sent her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized him and said, surely she, I mean, she is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her uh, to my own, to my son, Sheila, and he did not have relations with her again. And so Tamar was unable to hide the fact, obviously, that she now was pregnant. And when she could do so no longer, uh, Judah is told what was that she's expecting, uh, that she had been in sexual sin, and he ordered her death by burning, no doubt thinking that she had been responsible for her son's, his son's death, and now uh, she shamed their names again. She shamed his name. And even in this culture, this is very interesting, of this day, an ungodly culture, 
burning was a really unusual punishment. Later on, when the Mosaic Law would come, uh, death by stoning would be the normal punishment, and death by burning was reserved for the daughters of priests or certain forms of incest committed by women. But for now, that's what Judah says. And so knowing this day would come, uh, Tamar um, had secured the seal, the cord, the staff of Judah, and she produces them, and Judah realizes the, the punishment can't be carried out, that she, in fact, had acted more righteous than he had because she he had failed to give her the third son, Sheila, like he was supposed to. And to his credit, he admits his fault. Notice that. And so I, I thought it was good. Let me just show you. Henry Morris says, in the process of interrogating her, Judah suddenly experienced even greater shock. He himself, a self-righteous Judah, had been the adulterer responsible for her condition. There was no doubt about it because she, fo- she brought forth his seal and cord and staff to prove it. And so here's something to imply. Uh, another point, number five. If you find fault in another and seek to condemn them, make sure it isn't your own guilt that it's really the real issue. See? And you see that in the sense that who's guilty here really? Judah is really guilty. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. And yet he is so willing to convict and condemn this late, his daughter-in-law so quickly. And we are the same way. We can see other sins easier than our own sins. And when we do that, our judgment of them can sometimes then be over harsh. And so, again, Jesus talked about it, didn't he, in the New Testament? The speck and the beam in the eye, right? And so you want to go take the, the speck out of your brother or sister's eye, and all the while there's this huge beam in your own eye that you're unaware of. So, again, I think it's a good point for you and I that we want to be careful of that. Well, verse 27, it came about at that time... She was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place that she was giving birth. One put a hand out, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. And so he was named Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. And so even though um, only one hand came out first, Perez was considered the firstborn, and there's a couple lists of genealogies in the Bible that show that. Ruth tells us in chapter 4, verse 18, that King David was the ancestor of this child, and Matthew shows us that it would be, this is the line of Christ, the Messiah would come. And so it's interesting, isn't it? People that would say, you know, I love the New Testament, I love Christ, I love the love of God and the grace of God that we find there. Well, I'll tell you, you won't find a bigger picture of the grace of God than right here. Because here's Judah. Now you understand this guy, don't you? You understand who he was. And yet, isn't it amazing that before the foundations of the world, and even by what Judah did, it didn't alter God's plan. And God said, through him, the Christ will come to this world. That's grace, you guys. That's the grace of God. And so that's the sixth thing this morning. The grace of God, the Lord God, is a God of grace. And so the grace of God is available. And how thankful that we need to be for that. How thankful we have to have the grace of God. Amen? (laughs) Amen? I know this morning I'm exhorting you to live in a a right way, to hit those stepping stones. And I know that we don't always do that. And we miss those. And so we have to have the grace of God. And yet, what a challenge, isn't it? And so as we close, do this real quick in your mind, in your heart. Take an inventory. Have you been taking an inventory during the teaching? And so ask yourself, are you hitting the stones 
Or are you missing them? And hopefully you haven't just said, forget the stones. And like some kids do, you're just charging through the water and the mud puddle, you know? No. No. We want to hit those marks. We want to hit those paths that the Lord says, this way, this way, you know? And we want to live that way. And so we want to hit the stones. And, and again, if we miss them by ignorance, that's one thing. But if it's because you're, you're not appropriating the help that God has for us, that's quite another thing. So maybe this morning, for many of us, we need to be reminded that we are dead to sin, that Christ does live in us and we are alive to Him and Christ can give us success and victory. But is it what we truly want? And if it is, then we need to receive His strength and we could find the way. Just two Psalms in closing. Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. And Psalm 32, 8. I'll instruct you and teach you in the way that you shall go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Translation, come on, follow me. Let's play follow the leader. We're going to go down some muddy streams and creeks and you know this way and that way. But if you follow me, I'll show you where to step. I'll show you how to have success. I'll show you how to have victory. And you'll find that the joy and the strength and growth will be taking place in your life. Amen? And so, rise up, right? If you are here today and maybe something really convicted you, I really encourage you, don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. I don't know. I have really, I wasn't really thinking of anybody and specifically on anything, but if something convicted you and God just really spoke to your heart, don't be like Judah. Don't ignore the Spirit's voice and harden your heart. Listen to it. And as we dismiss, we're going to have a great barbecue. There's plenty of food. If you need prayer, just come up to the front. I'll hang up here for a little bit and uh, there'll be others and we could pray with you. But that's the important thing, see, that, that we get our lives right with the Lord and so we have the potential to walk. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Next week we'll move into 39. And so read ahead. Read a 40 as well. I'll see if we can't do two chapters. And of course we'll see Joseph. We'll pick it back up. And he'll um, be raised up. And then uh, Potiphar's wife will um, go after him. He'll end up in prison. And uh, so some more great lessons. Amen.